I'm Sarah. And I'm Darby. And And we we love love the Odyssey. Odyssey. So these two nerds are going to tell you about it. So grab your snacks and get ready to Odyssey Odyssey and chill. So here's what's going to happen. Each episode, we're going to summarize a section of the Odyssey, and then we're going to talk to a fancy person about it. If you don't need a summary, feel free to skip ahead. On this episode, we're going to summarize books 5 through 12, and our fancy person is Professor Annie Louie, Artistic Director of Counterbalance Theatre. Book 5. The gods gather for a board meeting to discuss Odysseus's fate. No, this is not episode 1 again. The gods just really like to have board meetings. Zeus asks his son Hermes, yes, Zeus had a lot of kids, to go to Calypso and tell her she needs to let Odysseus go. Remember Calypso from episode one? She's the goddess who has been holding Odysseus hostage. Calypso's not happy about this decision and accuses the gods of bearing, quote, a grudge whenever any goddess takes a man to sleep with as a lover, and recites a laundry list of examples. Hello, double standards. In the end, she agrees to do what Zeus said because Zeus said it and she doesn't have a choice. Calypso gives Odysseus the news. He's been sitting crying and pining for his home and family, so he's really pumped when he hears he can go home. But first, he has to have sex with Calypso one last time. After spending four days building a raft, he sets sail. Poseidon, the god of the sea, remember that guy? Sees Odysseus and is pissed that he's been allowed to go home. Once again, the gods had a meeting without inviting him, so he starts sending mighty waves towards Odysseus. Eno, another goddess who kind of comes out of nowhere, tells Odysseus to abandon his raft and his clothes, take her magic scarf for protection, and swim to Scyria. He swam for two days and two nights. Poseidon sent murder waves, Athena sent helpful waves that would get Odysseus to shore, there was an octopus in there at one point, but on the third day, he makes it to the shore and returns Eno's magic scarf by dropping it in the water. And what did he do next? He went into the forest to take a nap because swimming for three days is exhausting. And that takes us to the end of book five. Book six. While Odysseus is taking his epic nap, Athena goes to the Phaeacians, the people who inhabit Scyria. She visits Princess Nausicaa, who is also sleeping, and disguises herself as Nausicaa's BFF. She tells Nausicaa to go down to the river the next morning and wash clothes. As Nausicaa's obeying these orders in the morning, Odysseus, who is napping around the corner, wakes up. They see each other. By the way, Odysseus is still completely naked right now. Remember how he left his clothes behind when he was swimming? Nausicaa gives Odysseus some of the clothes she was watching and asks her slave to bathe him, because he was gross, and then takes him to Athena's sanctuary in town, where he prays to Zeus and thanks him for the Phaeacians' kindness. And that takes us to the end of Book 6. Book 7. As Odysseus walks into town, Athena, disguised as a young girl, appears to him and escorts him to King Alcinous. Wait, where did Nausicaa go? Odysseus refused Nausicaa's escort to town. Imagine the scandal if he showed up with the young princess. And Athena makes Odysseus invisible so that he can walk to Alcinous's court. All right. Athena drops him off at King Alcinous's palace. Nausicaa's already there. Odysseus makes his way to Queen Arete, Nausicaa's mom, who recognizes the clothes he's wearing because they're from the palace laundry, and asks her to help him get home. There's a feast, because there's always a feast. Everyone parties it up like it's 800 BC. But keep in mind, Odysseus never shares his identity. 
and King Alcinous low-key tells Odysseus he would prefer it if Odysseus stayed there and married his daughter Nausicaa, but eh, if you really want to go home, I guess you can leave tomorrow. No pressure. At the end of the night, slaves make a bed for Odysseus, and he goes to sleep happy. And that takes us to the end of Book 7. Book 8. King Alcinous asks his people to prepare a ship for Odysseus, along with a crew of his 52 best men. Then there was a goodbye feast, complete with live singing, poetry, and games. And when we say games, we mean sports. Like the discus. You know, like ancient frisbee. By the way, the Phaeacians are keen to prove that they are the best at everything. Alcinous' son, Laodamus, asks Odysseus to compete against him. Odysseus, though grief-stricken and beaten by war, accepts the challenge. He begins with a discus toss, and he throws the discus impressively far. After that, he challenges anyone else to any other sport, except a foot race, because his legs were ruined at sea. The exceptional Phaeacian poet, Demodocus, sings about the Trojan horse. Odysseus, moved by the poet's accurate description of the harrowing event, begins to cry. Now, no one here knows who Odysseus is, so they don't really get why he's crying. The book ends with King Alcinous asking Odysseus to tell his own story. Spoiler alert, Odysseus is going to outcompete Demodocus at storytelling, just as he bested all of the Phaeacians at discus throwing. And that takes us to the end of book eight. Book nine. So here's the story Odysseus tells. On the way home from the Trojan War, Odysseus and his comrades decide to engage in some casual piracy and pillage the coastal lands of the Sakonas, killing the men and stealing the wine and women, as one does. The Sakonas are not too pleased, so they call their friends on the mainland for help. These friends come in hot with weapons and in such large numbers that they chase Odysseus and his crew back to the boat. Next, they journey to the land of the Lotus Eaters. The Lotus Eaters invite everyone to eat, wait for it, lotuses with them. Unfortunately, these lotuses are basically opium, and anyone who eats them desires to do nothing else ever again. Odysseus was like, oh heck no, and he ordered everybody back to the boat. So then, they get to the land of the Cyclops. Technically, the plural is Cyclopes. Yeah, that's not a word. Anyway, they're gigantic one-eyed anarchists who live in caves on an island. Odysseus's crew want to steal some food and skedaddle, but Odysseus decides to see if he can sweet-talk some sheep and cheese out of the Cyclops Polyphemus. Polyphemus was not too happy about these squatters, and he decides to eat Odysseus's men two by two and traps everybody in a cave with him. Wait, what? Yeah, Polyphemus is a part-time cannibal. Odysseus gets Polyphemus super drunk, and while Polyphemus is passed out in a drunken stupor, Odysseus and four comrades stick an olive wood stake into Polyphemus's eye, blinding him. Then, the gang hides under Polyphemus's sheep, and when Polyphemus lets the sheep out of the cave to graze in the morning, Odysseus and his companions escape to the ship. That's when Odysseus gets cocky and starts taunting Polyphemus from the ship, stupidly revealing his name, which he had been very careful not to mention earlier. Promptly? Polyphemus calls out to his father, Poseidon, yeah, remember him? To curse Odysseus forever. So basically, Odysseus screwed himself over. And that takes us to the end of Book 9. Book 10. Odysseus continues his story. That's right, folks. There are three more books of this. Odysseus decides to take a nap, again, because his life is just that exhausting. They were almost home when, and when I say almost, I mean they could see Ithaca from the ship. And that's when the crew decides to get in a fight over their jealousy of Odysseus's treasures. Real mature, guys. So they angrily open one of the treasure bags. What they didn't expect was in that 
particular bag, there were winds that had been given to Odysseus as a gift from Aeolus, the guardian of the winds, to help him get home safely. So they open the bag, and the winds come out in a rage that blows the ship years away from Ithaca. Then they get to another island, but the inhabitants happen to be cannibals, so those that are left get out of there pretty quickly. Next, Odysseus and his companions arrive at the home of the enchantress Circe. Circe turns Odysseus's men into pigs, but Odysseus seduces her into turning them back. That's right, folks. Odysseus shacks up with another goddess. Odysseus luxuriates in Circe's palace for a year until his sailors complain, so he asks for her help in getting them home. Circe tells him that he has to journey to the land of the dead to find his way home and gives him directions. Then he freaks out. And that takes us to the end of book 10. Book 11. In order to get to the underworld, or land of the dead, the boys sail to, quote, the limits of the deep-flowing ocean, then perform sacrifices, dig a hole, and pour libations in it in order to call the dead. And then a parade of dead people show up. And not just any dead people. We're talking famous Greek heroes from the Trojan War, like Achilles, Agamemnon, Ajax... Also, his dead mom shows up. Well, that's one way to learn that your mom is dead. Then, the ghost of Elpinor shows up. Elpinor was a crewmate of Odysseus who got drunk and fell off of Circe's roof. He never got a proper burial, so he tells the boys that once they go back to Circe's house and give him one, she will help them get home. And that takes us to the end of Book 11. Book 12. The crew does what the ghost of Elpinor asks and gets instructions from Circe. Then, they sail away and pass the sirens, creatures that look like women and sing beautiful songs with which they lure sailors to their deaths. Odysseus has his crew stop their ears with wax, but he was still curious to hear the song of his destiny. And who doesn't want to hear sexy naked ladies singing? In a dramatic gesture, he ties himself to the mast so that he can hear the songs of the sirens unscathed. For once, his plan works with every detail, and they get away unharmed. They continue to sail. Odysseus knew, because Circe told him, that he had two choices, either go past the sea goddess Scylla, who was to eat six of Odysseus's men, or to sail past the whirlpool of Charybdis that will smash his ship to smithereens. Odysseus chooses to pass Scylla, but he keeps it on the DL so that his crew won't be pissed. And then six of them were eaten. Then they land on Thrinacia, an island on which the sun god Helios grazed his herds. After being stuck on the island for a while, the men run out of food. While Odysseus is asleep, Sense a theme here? The men slaughter all, and I mean all, of Helios's cattle. Because they are men, and they wanted to. Unfortunately, Helios notices and complains to Zeus. All of a sudden, the skins they'd skinned from the cattle began to crawl away, and the meat they'd speared on the spits begins to moo. The men still feasted. They figured as long as the cattle were already dead, they might as well eat them. But the second they left the island, Zeus hurled thunderbolts at the ships and killed all of Odysseus's comrades and sent the ships into the whirlpool of Charybdis, the place he was trying to avoid earlier when he chose to pass through Scylla. It chewed it all up and spit out one single plank. Odysseus, clinging for dear life to the last plank of his ship, is eventually washed up onto the island of the goddess Calypso, which brings us back to where we met him at the beginning of this episode. So that's where story time ends. Oh, yeah, this was all a flashback. Alcinous and his court are stunned into silence by Odysseus's mastery of storytelling, not to mention the incredible content, and agree to help him get home. And that takes us to the end of book 12.
today we're sitting with Annie Louie, Artistic Director of Counterbalance Theatre, full-time faculty member and co-head of the acting program at the University of California, Irvine, writer, director, choreographer, and all around an incredible creator of physical theatre. Gee, Hi, thanks, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I guess the first question I would have for you is to kind of describe the theatre that you do and your process. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> well, Counterbalance Theatre... Uh, came into being when I did a production of Jane Eyre. I decided I wanted to create a new dance piece, and then I realized I was also fascinated with literature, and then I somehow decided I was going to work on Jane Eyre. And I was really disappointed in myself because I thought it was really a very old-fashioned choice, not <laughs> particularly trendy and not particularly hot in any way. And uh, I but found myself... Book. Exactly. Fascinated by the story and then finding the way to tell the story. And the way to tell the story was through images. And those images turned themselves very quickly, not just into movement theater, but into movement theater that had little scenes in it. So there was text as well. And text from the book? And text directly from the book. I don't consider myself a playwright. So Counterbalance Theater came into being after that production, uh, and that production toured to the Edison Theater in St. Louis, and we had to come up with a name for ourselves quick. <laughs> so it became Counterbalance Theater. How long ago was this? This was seven years ago. You know, once we literally formed a company and, you know, became tax-exempt, I mean, did, did the whole thing, uh, we started just taking up what was the next really fascinating novel that came to mind. And they were almost always great literature, so we ended up with a mission statement of counterbalance theater dedicated to creating physical theater based on great literature. One of my big questions is, why the Odyssey? I really love things that live somewhere between the human world and a supernatural world. I think a, a lot of us are constantly aware of those two places. Uh, I think the fact that in the Iliad and in the Odyssey, it's completely accepted that there's an active supernatural world. This is not separate from the human world. This is just always there. So the fact that gods get to come down and have opinions or the gods come down in disguise and show you something uh, is just part of the way the world works. So that makes it really interesting to take on as a piece of physical theater because now people flying or people, yeah, you know, monsters appearing or, you know, gods flying down from Mount Olympus is just part of the fabric of the story. And that's the sort of thing I like to do anyway. So it, it, all, <laughs> it all works out really well. <laughs> What's your favorite translation and why? Steve and Mitchell. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my favorite translation because it's so visceral. It's very immediate. It happens in the immediate moment. It's truly thrilling. It's, it feels like he combines all aspects of kind of popular culture of a slasher movie, you know, with an adventure film. I mean, you're on your toes. You can't wait to see what's going to happen next. So it makes it very easy to translate into action. It's a very, yeah, makes it very exciting. Yeah. 
Well, I wonder this might be a question for Darby. If do you find that that's something that your students struggle with if they're they don't have a certain cultural background? Yes, absolutely. It's it's a difficult thing for them to conceptualize, and you can see that you know adaptations like Troy take out the supernatural because we're less comfortable yes. with it. Um, but I think that the art and um, film and productions that keep in that element really keep in something that's very basic about Homer and really necessary partially because the the Greek world is alien and it's cool to experience that through art. Mm. Um, And so it's a great way to appreciate it. And I think that you did a really good job of of bringing that to life in a way that I I think a lot of people miss out on. Thank you. I remember you mentioned there were some funny moments in, in this production of The Odyssey that you picked up on. I mean, there there were some obviously funny moments, like the the way of staging Polyphemus with the two people that were holding each other. I don't yep. know how one would describe that, but um, the the eye, the single eye of Polyphemus was created out of somebody's legs yeah, around good. another person's head. So it was a sort of like eye of Sauron kind of eye. Oh. Uh, but made yep. out of yeah, and and it that was just very funny, and the the two um, uh, people were speaking together, so yep. it it had this extra deep voice, and it was a great way of just being monstrous on stage. Great, um, I loved that. Okay, so it was like a human holding somebody else upside down, yes, both yeah. front facing, yes, yes. Okay, and yes. they were both speaking at once. Yes, yeah. How did you come up with that? I. I knew I was going to do it from the start. That was in the script. I thought, what's monstrous? You know, we can make somebody really tall, but that doesn't really do it for me. We can try to have one eye all the time, you know, but unless we go around, you know, doing this, I I don't. So I decided that what was monstrous was something that had to be unnatural to us, and that had to be two people, and one of them was upside down, and they needed to hold it the whole time. So that scene is, you know, it was about seven minutes long. And so I let them flip. So one of them would sometimes be the carrier, and then at other times it'd be the other one. So it would go back and forth between. Within the same scene? Yes. Oh, fun. Yes, it was really fun. And sometimes at one point, like when when uh, the Cyclops is eating Odysseus's crew, we just had the the and they were two very strong women. They turned into one giant mouth, so they were just one mouth, and they would eat, eat the crew, and then they they'd flip back up and be who they were. <laughs> it was really fun. It oh, was wow. really fun. That's really cool. Yeah, that was something we knew we were going to do the first day of rehearsal of that scene because I said, "Okay, listen, you all, we have to find a monster. I think it's made up of two people." And it can't be just tall. I don't want somebody sitting on somebody else's shoulders. So I paired up all of these physical actors I had in the room and said, come back in 10 minutes and give me a monster. And so we did. Uh, We looked at four different variations of monsters and then immediately found the one that appealed to all of us and said, okay, now you two actors, you do that monster. Cool. Yeah. And then it developed from there. I think... 
seem to remember you had some thoughts on the Cersei character. Well, yeah, first, I mean, I was thinking this is sort of perfect transition because one of the other really funny moments is when Cersei turns the crew into swine and then turns it back. And also the, how did you come up with the the Cersei scene in general? How did you pick the person who was playing Cersei? Because she did a fantastic job and really brought a lot of, like, gravitas. Like, I, you really believed that she had this magical power. So, like, how did you go about doing that scene? Um, number one, I'm blessed with very good actors. So that, that and they all have to play so many things. So I, I think that actually liberates the actors a little to go full out. They're going to go full throttle in whatever it is they're portraying because they know in... And I say this to them, I'm like, you are going to be Cersei now, but you know in two minutes you're going to be a flower, you know, or you're going to be, you know, part of a palace. So you've only got two minutes to give me that character. You've got two minutes to give me everything you know about the character. So you've got to be right inside it. In a way, it helps. It, it pushes the actors hard. Um, I, I think... That was a scene in particular that I just, I learned a lot by reading it more. Because, of course, you say, ah, Enchantress, and she turns them into pigs, and it you know, takes a year, and they come back. Okay, that's information. But then you think, actually, it's a very funny metaphor that they become pigs because she gives them you know, food, and she gives them wine, and then they want more, and then she gives them more, and then they want even more. So, of course, they're going to turn into pigs eventually. So <laughs> you you just have them kind of slowly losing in their greed, slowly losing their ability to be human until finally by the end in this sort of little uh, circular dance we did of drinking and eating and, and, and talking and then a eventually grunting, they, they all end up on all fours walking around because, really, it, it's very clear how they became pigs. Mm. Yeah. So it's, it's in the book. Uh, and, and that's what I find really wonderful about working with these pieces of great literature is that the stories are, it's already all there. You just have to read it deeply enough. It's already there. Mm. Yeah. And what about, you mentioned Eno being a character you really liked and the, the moment with the scarf. I don't know why. Okay. I just know it, you know, it's maybe a half a page in the text and out of how many pages and pages and it turned into an entire scene for me. Uh, I, I loved the fact that he was tired. It just seemed like he'd been rowing. He was lost. Poseidon's against him because he's killed off his, not killed off, but he's tried to kill off his son, the Cyclops. Okay, so we understand why Poseidon's angry. Poseidon has a lot of power. The entire sea is against you. And suddenly this, this completely otherworldly creature rises up to save you. I don't know. There's something maybe just in the metaphor of that that... I really love that that point of being completely out of control and having everything really tidal waves of disaster coming down on you and your boat broken and you underwater and there's your savior underwater coming to help you and speaking to you in a language you don't really understand 
but guiding you someplace. Hmm. It's a sort of random act of kindness, almost, or not not necessarily random, but it does. She just sort of surges. <laughs> At least that's how it feels to me. She surges almost out of nowhere. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't. I might be. Am I wrong? We don't mention her before this no, moment. No, no, no. She's yeah. she's this very isolated character, and and you get this in epics, right? Um, but also because there are these sort of just accumulations of divine presences that show up both in Greek literature and in just sort of their pantheon. There are these interesting little yeah. figures. And um, there are a number of those in the Odyssey. The Phaeacians are another oh, one great. Um, that are these sort of like semi-divine-seeming figures that spring up out of nowhere to be helpful. Um, and so, uh, and and also just some, like, little moments that show up in the text. So the Demodocus song about um, Aphrodite and Ares just seems to be a just, like, nice moment in the text that isn't really related to the rest of the story. So why... Do you think there are those moments that sort of show up in Homer? Like, what speaks to you about those little things that just... Well, again, I think it's that that natural and supernatural world existing simultaneously. You know, that the Phaeacians have eyes on their ships, so they'll know where they're going, you know, like yeah. many of the ships <laughs> did, but that they actually say that. And in fact, the, the queen of the Phaeacians says, okay, you know... Stranger, you have to tell us who you are because, and where you want to go because our ships, we just tell them where to go and they go there, which I just love. It's <laughs> like, you know, so you've got to give us the GPS address where you're headed <laughs> so the ship will, like, go to the right yeah. spot. The precursor to the self-driving car. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, and that they just... You know, that Athena guides him there, too, you know, in the guise of a young girl. I mean, I actually really loved making that um, when we did our first version of the Odyssey because I had to put it together in pieces. It was it was too big to do just at once. In the first one, we ended there. We ended with the Phaeacians and uh, them saying, Stranger, who are you? And what I went to when he's asked who he is, was him remembering all of his friends who had died back in Troy. So there's sort of a list of all of these people who had died that passed through his memory. And then he's like, but I'm here now. You know, here's who I am. I'm Odysseus. Ooh, and that was the end. Yep. Wow. Yep. That's a beautiful <laughs> end and quite the cliffhanger. Yeah, that's very powerful. Um... Speaking of the, the, the dead comrades from Troy, um, you did some really interesting things with the staging of the underworld and specifically the Ajax oh scene. So can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, it breaks my heart. I mean, still. Do you know? I mean, I think it's the place none of us understand, nor did the Greeks, you know, like what is on the other side. And that Odysseus, because he is our everyman, you know, gets to go there. He gets guided by Circe. Here's how you get there, you know, and, and you have to do this, and then you have to do that, and then you turn in the road, and you by the stream, and then there'll be a boat, and then there'll be a little bit of help, and then good luck. Um, and sure enough, he gets there, and he meets with his mother. It's so sad, who he didn't even know was dead. 
Yeah. Uh, it was really that. Actually, that was where I felt I I succeeded. I think there's two places I feel I succeeded in making the audience cry every night. <laughs> in that Homeric way of like, <laughs> yes, make them cry and you'll get paid. Um, <laughs> Yeah, they, I mean, everybody cried, and actually, all of my Odysseuses cried when they met their dead mother. Oh, gosh. Yeah, and, yeah, I worked with three different Odysseuses, and they all just were so horrified by the idea of it that I didn't ask them to. They just started crying as they started having this conversation with their mother. Wow. Yeah, it was really interesting. Powerful stuff. So, so tell us. So, you had three different Odysseuses. So, how did they shape the performance? Um, and and what did they? Did they have different ways of portraying him? Did that change the rest of the staging? Um, My first Odysseus was a wonderful, extremely physical graduate actor who was, you know, among besides being a beautiful contact improvisation practitioner was also a weightlifter. So he could do anything, really anything, and liked doing anything. Um, and I also, when I first looked at the text, had decided that the opening of the entire story, like how do we begin? You know, after you let the bard say, and then they rode, and Troy was bad, and then they're leaving, uh, What's the first scene? Do I already want to go straight into the Cyclops? No. You know, what I want to do is see them rowing. I think it's really important. You've got to see them in the boat. So in Stephen Mitchell's version, it said, and as they're rowing away, they're, they're thinking about their dead comrades. And you had to say the name three times out loud in order to let, let them go. So we picked, we couldn't go through all of the names, but we picked sort of the biggest ones we could find and then had them repeated over and over again as people were rowing. And that was the beginning of the production. And it felt like you're already, you know, you're beginning from the place you left off from. Mm. You know, and now we're on to launching out the new journey. So, this does answer your question. Uh, my Odysseus, I said, look, if we're starting at the end of a war, let's say that you're a returning soldier, Let's say that you got post-traumatic stress syndrome. He liked this a lot. You know, he'd had relatives who'd been in the army and who'd come back recently. So that really became part of it. It was this immediate ability to respond when he had to and this kind of haunted feeling of being a little bit too skittery, uh, a little bit too responsive sometimes, uh, and also very much saddened by things he remembered. You'd see him remembering occasionally. So that was pretty profound, uh, starting from that place. The next Odysseus I had when I worked on the next section of the script was in Italy. And he had a whole other way of being. And somehow talking about post-traumatic stress syndrome didn't, wasn't going to go anywhere with him. This, this wasn't where he was living. And I was working with a group of actors who were all training in, um, <laughs> they were, they'd all been training in Comedia. So they were very used to big, broad gestures, uh, which was a little hard. But I brought them into a place where they could get very involved with the story. But we ended up being much more about the storytelling 
You know, it was the culture they were from. My third Odysseus was Zach Houston, who I, th I think you know, who was incredibly charming and amicable. And so immediately, the moment I knew I was going to cast Zach, I went, well, this, this is the charming trickster. You know, mm. this is the trickster Odysseus. You know, this, this is not a man who is caught up in, in the past as his primary driving force. His primary driving force is, hey, guys, you know, how are we going to deal with this one in, in a very kind of um, trickstery way? Yeah. Cool. And did you notice a difference in the audience reaction or a difference in, in terms of did they respond more to certain things? I think so. Okay. Not not as much as you would think because, again, the story's the same. You know, it's like you can do Romeo and Juliet with how many different people in how many different ways. Um, the story is the same, but, uh, you know, with Zach, certainly I think the comedy was definitely uh, really obvious. And with Blake, I think it was it was this haunted or poignant the poignant moments particularly when he's leaving Circe that was poignant in that production this was awesome this was really lovely great. thank you yeah, so much for so much this is fantastic my pleasure Odyssey and Chill is made possible with the generous support of UCI Illuminations with special thanks to Professor Julia Lupton, without whom this project would not have happened, the Associated Graduate Students of UCI, and Professor Vinnie Olivieri, who knows all the things and pointed us in the right direction. <laughs> <laughs>